All right, welcome back to the Book of Romans. We're in Lesson 20 today, and uh, we're in that section of the, bi- of the Book of Romans on sanctification, and we're in the fourth lesson on the topic of sanctification. Um, there are two large sections, good morning, in the Book of Romans chapter 6 that we're looking at today, and that is within those blue lines at the top of your page. Our union with Christ, verses 1 to 11, and the Lordship of Christ, verses 12 to 23. We've been in Romans chapter 6 a while, and I had a funny incident the other day when I was studying for this morning. And I had one of those uh, moments where I made myself laugh after I said something out loud. And I was studying Romans 6, and we've been in Romans 6 like four weeks. And our pace had been much faster than that before we got to Romans 6. So as I was studying, I just kind of raised my head and I said, I have to get out of Romans 6. And and then I thought of the the implications of that too is uh, spiritually or just uh, physically. So move on in my Christian life or whatever. So... So this is it. This is the final journey into Romans 6 today. Lord willing, we'll start Romans 7 next week. And so we want to give our last time through Romans 6. So we ground down into the reality of our union with Christ. So again, the first 11 verses are about our union with Christ. The last verses, 12 to 23, are about the Lordship of Christ. And that is how our Christian life actually works. So let's go back in. Verse 1, refresher. And we're going to look at page one in depth here today because of Paul's great picture of baptism. So you remember in verse one, it simply is the charge was against justification by grace alone through faith alone. And it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now there's two answers to this. Paul is addressing this. The gospel is too easy, Paul. And he's addressing this. The Gospels by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But, now we are sanctified the same way. That's what people think. The antinomians and the legalist. Two extremes about the view of the Gospel in chapters 1 to 5. The antinomian says when you get through the Gospel, Awesome. I was saved by grace. Through faith, I'm sanctified by grace through faith. There's nothing for me to do. It's an error. It's not a heresy, but it's an error. You're saved by grace through faith. You did nothing. We earned it not. It was unmerited. I did no works to get it. That was the first five chapters, right? But it could be that you think, so I'm sanctified that way. It's to simply trust God that the work of the Spirit will make me in the image of Christ without any effort on my own. And I don't want to do any works because that will be legalism. So a Christian could think, if I do anything, it's legalism. Well, that's true of salvation, right? But to apply salvation or justification to sanctification, how you, the method of it messes up sanctification because it's grace alone through faith alone. No, it's grace plus faith and works that make sanctification. But for Christians, you get nervous. Oh man, threw the works bag in on me. But again, Paul is making the distinction here. Should we continue to get a favor with God by being sinners who need to be rescued? 
Is that the picture of sanctification? We're always just sinners who need to be rescued and we're unable to help ourselves. It's a wrong application of the gospel to sanctification. And that's what Paul's addressing, first of all, with the antinomians, which means lawless ones. But then there's also the other person who he's addressing. The other person doesn't say, hey, the gospel should, you should live the Christian life the same way as the gospel. The other person says, you've got the wrong gospel. Paul, it's too easy. It's way too easy. Grace alone, faith alone, do you know what that's going to do? I say here, the legalist says, so, teaching that justification is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, will lead to the antinomian position. This is how a Catholic, since I grew up Catholic, right? A Catholic would address this. If you say, it's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, do I have to obey the Ten Commandments? Nope. To be saved, you don't. Okay, do I have to do the sacraments? Nope. Row, row. <laughs> it's a false gospel to them. Why? Because there's no meritorious action on my behalf. I don't have to do anything so they conclude. If you get them in the gate by freedom of grace, what are you going to do to keep them? Because they're going to go crazy in there. And so either one's an extreme, right? The antinomian view or the legalist view. Paul in chapter 6, the whole thing is for him to address this point. How then are Christians sanctified? Since they were saved by grace alone through faith alone, how are they sanctified? By grace plus faith and works is how we are sanctified. We are made more in the image of Christ. But that key is that you're saved by grace and sanctified by grace. But it's a misunderstanding of grace which causes the first problems. And we're going to address that in chapter 6. All right, let's look at verses 2 to 4. The real point, Paul is going to use a picture then to tell us how we should view sanctification. Verses 2 to 4. May it never be. That is, no, don't keep trying to get saved. Now you need to be sanctified. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Paul is using baptism here as a picture, simply a word picture. So in so many words, Paul's saying, okay, you need to understand that your water baptism is a picture outwardly of something that's happened to you inwardly. And it pictures three phases. That Christ died, buried, rose again, and when you were baptized, my wonderful picture of the water here should change your life. Okay? When we were water baptized, we pictured outwardly to those who watched it those three phases of our salvation. That we used to be dead in our sins, but that in Christ, we have been washed and regenerated and we've been changed. And now we're going to walk in a newness of life. The three phases of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection are true of us in that we are in Christ. And it is imputed or it acted in God's mind that it is true of us that we have died to sin. And we are no longer over, sin is no longer over us. But it's a picture. Paul is not saying that your baptism does this. Right? He's not saying water baptizing you is going to make you free from sin. Uh, but rather, this is simply an outward picture. 
I haven't decided if I'm carrying my water bottle around all day, but apparently I am. So there it is. So again, taking a look at the picture, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. The picture of baptism then, Paul again is saying your water baptism is a picture of something that's truly happened to you because your status has changed. Christ died, but at the end of the status, he was alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we are in Christ and we are alive. Something has radically changed is the picture of water baptism. The problem we have is we don't feel that. We don't necessarily feel changed. We don't necessarily feel that we have died to sin or sin is no longer our master. And so, now let's address those questions. Verse, or I almost said verse 1. Uh, point 1, under the water bubble, Christ's death is proof that he'd become the sin bearer. Let me stop there. Christ's death is the proof that he actually was the sin bearer. No one could see on the cross when he was there that day, sin dumped into him. No one could see him as the sin bearer outwardly. The fact that he died was a demonstration that he was bearing sin. Because the wages of sin is death. And Christ, who was perfect, would not have died had sin not been placed on his account. And so his death is an indicator light on the dashboard of redemption that he was bearing sin. He died because of the sin placed on him. And then, secondly, his burial is a proof that he was dead. Sin bearer. But then, of course, he went in the tomb for three days to demonstrate, and the spear, he's dead. And then thirdly, his resurrection, most importantly, is proof of his life and his victory over sin and death, right? So those three aspects of that. So number two, baptism is a picture or a symbol of our union with Christ. Let me slow it down. The point is that we have moved from the sphere or realm of in Adam, chapter 5, to the sphere or realm of in Christ. He says, should we continue to get saved the same way? No. Let me explain, he says. Don't you know that the baptism that you did in water pictures for you the change in status that you have? That you're no longer that person, but you're this other person? Okay, chapter 5 was you were in Adam. Now he's saying, you're not in Adam. You're in Christ. That's chapter 6. This union with Christ is the picture throughout the whole thing. What is that going to mean? Well, this very simple chart. In chapter 5, we were told three things. Sin was dominated over us. Everyone sinned in Adam. Secondly, everyone was condemned in Adam. Right? And then thirdly, everyone died in Adam. That's chapter 5. Everyone in Adam has those three wonderful truths about them. Chapter 6 reminds us, in Christ, instead of in sin, we are ruled by righteousness. Instead of being condemned, we are justified. Instead of being dead, we're now alive. And so chapter 6 is a reflection of, you're in Christ. Everything just changed. But again, as a Christian, there's like a zillion books and seminars on how it changed and what you should do about it. 
And some of them are quite mystical, as we've talked about. I must now play the mind game. I am a new person. I'm a new person. I hate my boss, but I'm a new person. (laughs) I must have feelings of. Feelings will come. Is it a mind game? Let's go further. I think this will help. Number three. Baptism is the outward symbol of an inward reality. Our water baptism did not save us. In fact, it did not do anything to us. Right? God is wet. I remember a baptism uh, maybe 10 years ago in California that we did. And a very honest but disconcerting answer from a lady that we baptized and you want people to be baptized because they love the Lord. And they, it's a symbol of their faith. And they want to do it because they want to live in the newness of life. But she had been a Christian a while, but had never been water baptized. And so she came to be baptized. And so even though she'd given good answers privately, publicly we asked her, why do you want to be baptized today? She said, look, I want to serve in the children's ministry. Unless I get baptized, you're not going to let me. <laughs> Let's get real. I was like, I was like. Did you baptize? We we did baptize her that day. Yes, we just sprinkled her though. So back to number three. So our water baptism does not save us. In fact, it did not do anything to us but get us wet. Yet. Our baptism is a public ceremony picturing our identification with Christ. It pictures three things. That we believe the gospel. Because, again, water, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is pictured in our baptism. And that we agree with that message that we were sinners, could not save ourselves, and we publicly confess Christ as our Savior. Not to get saved, but that is a picture. Secondly, with baptism, we are picturing for ourselves a new life. We were in the old life, we're now been buried in Christ, and we're in a new life and a new walk with Christ. And thirdly, that we've been forgiven of our sins and washed and cleansed. The water representing what Christ did for us and that we were in our sins. We've been forgiven, we've been cleansed, we've been changed, and we're now a new person. All of those are pictured when we do the redemptive play in front of people of water baptism. So what? Next page is the most important. If you get anything, page two. How should I understand that then? I get it. Paul is saying, water baptism pictures my change of status. Help me out. I've given six word pictures that I want to walk through. I'm going to be really pedantic. I'm going to go dive down into them. and You're going to be like, I get it. I hope so. Let's picture a wedding. Since I went to one yesterday. The couple are not married. At the ceremony, there's a public ceremony that now changes their public status. It's a drama and a ceremony celebrated in front of other people. That doesn't change anything. Doesn't change their physical form. Doesn't change their mind. They're not melded together in this... But in the mind of God... They're now one. There's a mystical union that takes place in the mind of God in which he accounts for them as one person and one unit. 
wonderful. Did it mystically happen? No, but it's a, imputed as, if you will, that is the case. That ceremony, they promised a lot of things, but the public ceremony doesn't make you married. Now, it does before the law, but it, it was the commitment. It was the vows together that says, we're going to do this new covenant. And that covenant is played out in front of people, and how do they do it? Well, they do things like unity candles, right? The, the symbol of we're coming together. And then the mother-in-law candles, right? Has anybody seen the blending the sand thing? Blending the sand thing. They're all pictures that something just happened that nobody can put their finger on. And when they walk out of there, they're married. And they're like, come on! They smash cake in each other's face or whatever. But when they get married over here, did anything really change? Public ceremony, commitment that everybody saw that really changed nothing in substance, but what does it mean? The next morning you wake up, you're married. Now you have to act married. Everything has to change, doesn't it? Then Bible verses make sense on the other side of that to, to the husbands, where it says, live with your wives according to knowledge. That is, now begin to learn what in the world you're doing. Because marriage that grows to glorify God is a process. There's no perfect state of marriage in this life. There's no one time where you're like, we, we dialed that in. Because we got married, we're married. Therefore, marriage just flows out of us. <laughs> no, no, there's a lot of bad things that flow out of us too, right? Do you see the picture? A change of status that is publicly recognized that everyone knows that you even intended, but it changed nothing, but it changes everything the way we think. Now we have to live like we're married and stop living like we're single. And we know that there's three words in the Bible that describe that. Leave, cleave, and become one flesh. It's, a, it's both physical and spiritual. And that is marriage is a process. And so is sanctification. Paul's picture of baptism is simply this. Used to be, now you are, and here you go. And the Christian life, picture number two, graduation. Right? I used to be a student. I used to take classes. I gave them $100,000. I got a degree that says I can take care of puppies on the weekends and work at Starbucks. <laughs> but I used to be a student, right? Then I graduated. Public ceremony. They go crazy. You move the tassel. They hand you a piece of paper. They take pictures. You wear the cool stuff. You go to a reception afterwards. Welcome grads. It's awesome. We ought to do it. But it doesn't really do anything to the person. They're the same person that walked from up the platform and down the platform and did all of that. But now what you have to do? You have to get a job. <laughs> Carla, could you call our two sons? Okay. You have to live, and we say this to people, welcome to the real world. Right? Hello! So when you get in the real world, you have to stop being a student and start being an employee or a called one or a career or whatever your calling is, right? It's a change of status through a public ceremony that did not actually change anything. And the rest of it is working out and saying, I have to go to work today. I'm responsible. Okay. Third one, you said, Dave, I got it. I hope so. Citizenship. 
You become a citizen of the United States. Now, unless you're of American Indian heritage, then at some point your forefathers came here and became citizens. Now, there may not have been a formal process when my parents, great-great-great-grandparents uh, got here from Ireland. They were probably incarcerated, so it doesn't really matter. But, um, <laughs> oh, you're the horse thieves from Ireland, right? <laughs> we know who you are, yeah. So, um, but when we become citizens of the United States now, and through that ceremony, it's the same thing. You're not a citizen, you don't care about the United States. But then you begin to care, and in your heart changes. I want to be a citizen of the United States because I believe in it. And then there's a ceremony, and they induct you as someone who is now a citizen. It changes your status. It changes your, the country of allegiance. It changes the priorities and perspective. It changes the laws that which govern your life. It changes your citizenship now over here. I vote. I do these things. It changes how you should act. But citizenship doesn't do you any good if you become a citizen and never vote. Or, or never feel liberty in your heart, or never change the way you live. You drive on the wrong side of the road and scare everybody. Right? There's a lot of things that go into changing. Some of you in the room, I look around, have become citizens of the United States in the last 20 years. You know that change takes place in the way that you look at life. And then fourthly, being a soldier. I never had the honor of that. My brother and my dad uh, served in the military. Many of you in this room have. Thank you for serving. Uh, but that's the very thing. One day you're, a, you're over here, you're a citizen. Just, just Citizen Joe, Citizen Jane. And then one day you become a citizen soldier. Everything changes. Who your boss is, what the orders of the day are, how you're to live your life. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy regarding going in the ministry, he says, he uses the illustration of a soldier and he says, Soldiers do not entangle themselves in the affairs of the world so that they can please the one who's their commander. And so soldiers have a different lifestyle. But if you come over here, and then you turn, and you decide, I'm actually going to serve another country's interest in this war. While you're a soldier, you're in treason. And again, in the picture of sanctification, Paul is saying, you have a break with that. Your citizenship is no longer in sin. It's no longer in death. That is a broken thing. But you can act like it's real. Every time we decide, I'm going to sin, it's, a, it's an overt act to go back to our former allegiances and our former alliances. But a soldier now has to do their life completely different. But if they don't use the weapons they have, all the pictures are there. Ephesians 6, the weapons of our warfare. If you don't, as a soldier, fight then you're only signed up in name, but you're not a faithful soldier. And then fifthly, church membership is exactly the same. I used to go to some hunky-dunk church, right? Where they didn't have awesomeness like Hope Bible Church. The real truth. Drinking from the fire hose of holiness. <laughs> okay. So you went to some other church, and then, in, in God's grace, you ended up here, and you watched it, and you talked to people, and you started going to some classes, and you saw the love of people at the church, and you read our doctrinal statement, and you're like, yeah. And you started seeing expository preaching, and how everybody at this church serves, no matter what. You guys are, like, all in. Like, everybody cleans this church. And so you see that, and God's goodness, someone decides to be a member at our church. 
I want in on that. I want to be part of the family. I like this family. I like coming to their rituals. I like coming to their thing. It's super cool. I want to be a family member. But what happens to people? Not, let's not say at Hope. Let's say at other churches. Bad churches. Where people become members, but there is no change. They still sit in the back. They still run out of the church three minutes after the service is over. They occasionally show up at something that has food. But there's not a whole lot of meaningful membership, right? Meaningful membership is acting on my new status. I'm a member at Hope Bible Church. I'm a family member. I should serve. I should give. I should be there. I should be accounted for. I should care for other people. That's what it means to be part of a family. And then finally, the National Park again. Does anybody think it's warm in here? Just saying. A couple of you just went, this is going to hurt. They're going to turn this down to nine degrees. Sorry, ladies. The National Park Revisited, I've used this illustration, but just let me remind you that there's a piece of property that is not a national park. That's before parkness. And then there's a decision to make something a national park. And so that decision ends up in a public ceremony where a giant pair of scissors cuts a huge ribbon and somebody speaks in a microphone while dignitaries sit on a platform. And they declare, this is now a national park. It's been set apart for that purpose. But if that's all they ever did and there were no roads built and there's no cabins and no ranger stations, and you know what I mean, nothing's ever done, then that will never be used by anybody but will be acknowledged. And so there's a progressive sense in which the national park has to then become more and more in the image of a national park. And uh, I'll tell you, my whole world's going to change then, Ann. I'll tell you, I'm going to be at Denny's every, every single day. Punching the golden ticket. Yes, my status change at 65 is coming very soon. Okay? Very soon. Um, so that's it. Top of page two, as I said. The other pictures is this. That's what Paul is telling us in chapter 6. He's just using baptism and a few other word pictures to explain the very same thing I just did in modern pictures. We've had a major status change that we're in on. It's publicly acknowledged through our water baptism, but it only starts the journey. And so when we ask the question, what is my role in sanctification? There is no easy answer to that of, our sanctification is simple, just trust Jesus. Our sanctification is a work. It's a hard work. And we're never done with that. But if you also recognize, just, just like marriage, there's incredible benefit in having a great marriage. We're not called to have marriages where it's like, just work on your marriage, and it's going to be terrible the whole time, but there it is. But God in His favor says, if both of you do what I say, marriage is beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's great. And in all these other pictures, there's benefits to those commitments. But they don't come without hard work. You don't put work into your marriage, it's not awesome. And so those are the pictures of sanctification that the rest of this chapter and chapter 7 and 8 are going to describe that. Now you go, okay, 
So, is what Paul's saying this? We were saved by faith, saved by grace, through faith, we're justified, but now we are sanctified by works? No. Uh, you're sanctified by faith plus works. You have to believe what God said about your union and your status change, and you have to trust, but you're trusting more than knowledge. It's an active faith and trust in the work of the Holy Spirit, who's a real person who's doing lifetime changing. It's not simply the acknowledgement, well, God changed my status, now I've got to work like crazy. But it's God changed my status and now has given me the ability to work like crazy. That the Holy Spirit is now inside of me and He's helping me work like crazy. And the fruit of the Spirit, this is chapter 8 that we're going to get to. Chapter 8 tells us the, the resources are the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, etc. And it's God who works in you, that we're getting to, Philippians 2, to, work, to help us to do work and do of His good pleasure. So it's a, it's a combo platter, but God's grace, that's the point. God's grace is the principal point of sanctification, just like it is of salvation. Okay, wait. What you have to understand, though, that many Christians never get to, that the word grace in the New Testament is at least two different meanings. There's God's graciousness. We are saved by grace, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That is God's graciousness, which means we get something we don't deserve, right? But the word grace, then, is used in the New Testament for Christians in a different way. You're not getting saved by grace by unmerited favor anymore. And you're not sanctified by unmerited favor. You're sanctified by empowerment. The grace of God is the power to do God's will. Paul said, my grace, he said of God's words, my grace is sufficient for you. He's not, when he uses that term, Paul is not pointing back to saving grace. Unmerited favor, because God did save us by grace in which he awakened us and regenerated us and overcame our inability. That's the grace of salvation. But the grace of sanctification is the empowerment of the Spirit and God working in you, causing you to want to be sanctified. God did not leave you at your salvation in, hey, you're a citizen now, just work it out. But he gives you citizen juice. And as a Christian, the work of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God is sufficient to cause you to want to be holy. Anybody who's truly a Christian has the grace of God sufficient to be holy. But God gives His grace in different measures. And that's true of the way God gives grace gifts, right? The spiritual gifts are charis gifts. They're grace gifts. And they are given in different measures and different ways. Some people have this gift. Some people have another. And here's the mystery of God's providence. God gives sanctification in different measures. There's always going to be people more holy than we are. And you can't account always by, well, they worked harder. We must work hard in our sanctification. But our work in our sanctification does not always equal the same crop. God is working in everyone individually and giving grace sufficient for what he called you to do. But it's not necessarily the grace that he's going to give to somebody else to accomplish it. There's always grace available to live God's moral law. Everybody gets equal opportunity there. 
but to accomplish and work for God? Paul talks about he gave more he gave more grace to some, and he gave less to others. We're going to look at that in these passages. So grace is a mystery, but here we are. We are saved by grace that overpowered our depravity, and it caused us to believe. We're sanctified by grace that overcomes our inertia, initial inertia, and it gives us the ability, but we must act. Let me just say one other thing. When God saved us, He changed our status of our heart, not just our status legally. So here's something Christians should not say. When Christian says, my heart is desperately wicked, who can know it? It's a great Bible verse. It is true of everyone outside of Christ. But it is not true of a Christian. The heart is the inner working of you as a person that includes your mind, your will, your affections. You are born again in your heart. You're not desperately wicked. Um, you can be deceived by the flesh. But you, the you person, the I, is the new person. You are not desperately wicked. Your flesh is residually bad. Your flesh is like a bus stop in Las Vegas or Oakland. It's just it's not a good place to go, and you don't need to live there. But you are not desperately wicked. If you are a believer, you are new in Christ, and you can have the mind of Christ and be renewed in those things. It is not... Because if we say we're desperately wicked, then we're back here saying we have a, we have a view of anthropology that's back in the old man. That I'm depraved, I can't help myself. But that's not the theology of being a Christian. I'm born again and I can. And by the grace of God, I can obey. Will I always? No. But I can and I should. But I don't always. It's different than I can't, I'm just desperately wicked. You just don't understand my heart, I'm just terrible. No, you're not. You're not terrible. You're born again. And so, here number five on page two. It's not a matter of feelings, right? of feeling different, but rather acting differently in recognition of the truth that we're now in a new relationship. Let me say this. It's going to sound like just gutted out. That's not how we want to come across. But if you based all the other pictures I just gave, marriage is based on feelings. I don't feel married. Okay, you should act married. I don't feel like a graduate. I feel like a student again. I'm not paying your bills. <laughs> right? I don't feel like a citizen. I don't feel like a soldier. I don't feel like a church member. Whatever. Feelings come and go. But there's no perfect state of feelingness about any of this Christian experience. There's a perfect change of status to which the Holy Spirit assures us that we are children of God as an active thing. Those feelings come. But assurance comes and goes relative to our relationship to the one who gives it. And so, all right, a few other points here. So it's, remember, what is our status change? We've been justified. Therefore, we've been freed from the penalty of sin. We are being sanctified. We're being freed from the power of sin. And then eventually we'll be glorified. And that is, we'll be freed from the presence of sin. And that's chapter 6, 7, and 8 of Romans. It's good stuff. So, um, I guess I'll continue. You guys having fun? Yes. Let's just close in prayer. <laughs> um, okay, middle of page 2 then. Verses 5 to 11 remind us, in light of that, our union with Christ is clear. 
And it'd be as if we're going to use the marriage illustration because union kind of uh, is uh, somewhat like explaining marriage. So verses 5 to 11. But if we've become united with him, that's the point. We're now in a new status in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection as alive. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified. Again, Paul is using an extended picture here. He's not now introducing new realities. He's simply keeping the baptism and the death, burial, and resurrection picture alive. He's got one big giant story he's telling. Now your baptism picture is this. And so if in that story it's true that Christ died and was raised again, you also have died. Okay, just saying. Verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin, just like Christ was. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we also will live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. He's changed status. For the death he died, he died once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, and this is the point that Paul makes for us, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The baptism picture explains that we've gone from single to being married. New status. Now Paul digs deeper into the marriage analogy or union. And he says, you're not just married, you're married to Jesus. That's the point of verse 11. Even so now consider yourselves dead to sin in the past, the old marriage, but alive to God in Christ. It's a person, not a program. We haven't changed religious status. I used to be a non-Christian, now I'm a Christian. I used to not know Jesus, and now I do. I'm alive in Him. It's a relationship. How do you, how do you know you're a believer? Well, the Spirit tells you you are, but Romans 8 is going to say, who has Christ? That person's alive. The person who has Christ is a believer. Why do I know I have Christ? He begins doing stuff, right? The, the life changes. The house rules change. Things start looking like Jesus because you're spending time with Him. And so again, a lot of people are like, I get it. I used to, I used to not believe in the Christian faith, but now I'm totally in on that. But it's all in here, right? It's not a relationship. And so Paul's point again is, if you're in union with Him, person, but we're alive to God in Christ Jesus... So three points quickly about that. What is union with Christ? Wayne Grudem, I think, has a good definition. And he simply says, We may define union with Christ as follows. Union with Christ is a phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers and Christ, through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation. These relationships include the fact that we are in Christ. That is... God considers our actions to be imputed, Christ to imputed to us because we're in Him. Everything He did righteous because we're in Him, we did. Secondly, um, Christ is in us, empowering us to become more like Him and to do what He said. Thirdly, that we are like Him. That is the goal and the purpose for which we were elected, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then finally, we are with Christ. It's a relationship. So we're in union with Christ, not simply mystically, 
but we're union with Christ in all of those dimensions. And thus the Christian life is all about Jesus. It's getting closer to Him. It's embracing who I am in Christ. It's embracing Him in me. It's embracing the walk with Him as a relationship. And so it's all about Jesus. Is there any rules to this? There's some rules. But it's more the royal law of Christ than it is the law, and that's what Paul's going to get into in chapter 7. And second, I want to go back to the marriage illustration. I don't say it well here, but maybe I can say it better than my writing. We are not to continue in sin because, if you take the analogy of marriage, we are no longer single. (laughs) That was Paul's first point. We're not single anymore, so we should act like married people. We are separate from that old life. Uh, We're not frat boys anymore, doing whatever we want. We're married men. We're married now. We're in a different sphere, a different realm. We're in a different status in our life. And then secondly, and as he said in verse 11, and we are alive to Christ in God, or God in Christ. It's a personal relationship that has changed. Our marriage is now to a person. It is not to a program or a religion. And therefore, it isn't, okay, I've become a Christian, now I've got to work hard so that I can do those rules. But rather, I'm going to work really hard because I can love Jesus more and I can get to know Him. Think of the parallel back to marriage. You make a lot of vows there. I will love you. I won't desert you. We're going to stay married the rest of our life. I'm going to be there for you. You're going to be the number one person in my life. You all been to those weddings, right? And then over here it's like, hey, can you get me some more sausage? Life just takes a big change here. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, the picture of the man and his wife, the picture of uh, that is a picture of Christ and his bride, and the relationship that takes place between them, and he's all in on protecting her and taking care of her and sacrificing for her, and it's a living, active thing. It's not simply signing up to do duties. And some marriages fall to doing duty. Well, I provided for you. What's the problem? Or, hey, I didn't yell back at you, but the marriage is cold. Now, think of any pictures in the New Testament where it's marriage analogies or relational analogies. Book of Revelation, right? The seven churches, the church at Ephesus. Their marriage was faithful. They never committed adultery. The Ephesians church is like, we believe the right doctrines, we're doing all the right things. And Jesus said, but I have a problem with you. You've lost your first love. Jesus was in a loveless marriage with the church of Ephesus. But we know who you are. We love, you know, we care about you. We paid all the bills. We did all the things. There's many analogies. There's unfaithful marriages. There's good marriages. Scripture's picture of our relationship with Christ is pictured in many places, like in the book of Hosea, where God has the prophet marry a harlot to show what it's like for God to deal with Israel because they were unfaithful to Him. And that's where our hearts go. We're unfaithful to God in our hearts. And so it's a marriage. It's a relationship. And what must I do about it? I must continuously fall in love I must continuously desire what's best for him. I must desire to be with him. And that's how relationships are born out. And if it doesn't, it's just ritual. And then we end up being okay and miserable. It is possible as a Christian, as I said last week, to be addicted to a certain kind of sadness. And to have a relationship that is always 
I feel bad about this. I hate myself. Or disregard. There's so many, so many ways we ruin this relationship. Many of you have been believers a long time. I have, by God's grace. Um, 45 years for me. Many of you, well beyond that, have known the Lord. I want to end well. I want to finish well. I don't want to slide for home, using a baseball analogy. Round third and slide for home. I don't want to act like a Christian. I don't want to just be religious. I want to love Jesus. That is my goal. That's my desire. I believe it's my passion. I believe it's indicative in my life. But I want to end well by loving Him. I don't want to be surprised when I show up in heaven like, oh, this was a relationship? <laughs> it's like, I'm Jesus. I'm like, yeah, but I was a pastor. Right? You know what it was like when you got saved. You, you couldn't stop talking about Him who he is and what he did for you and how a bride does with her marriage and a groom. It's the same analogies. Becoming a new soldier, you come home that first Christmas with your uniform on. But you've been in there two years, you're jaded. Yeah, Uncle Sam, man, they're, they're messing me over. <laughs> right? Right? Exactly. It's easy. Hey, wherever you are in your Christian life, my encouragement, exhortation today is pretty simple. Go home. Go home in your heart. Fall in love with Jesus Christ again. And uh, don't allow religion or good things to get in the way of that relationship. And whatever is in the way, throw it away. Right? And that's true of a good marriage. Things that are in the way, get rid of them. You're too busy? Change your schedule. You know, it's that kind of thing. No, we just that's how life is, man. We just got to... Your marriage is, you only get so off. You only get so long to be with them, right? Okay. And then the bottom of the page, I just, what I already said, returning to sin, then, as if we're married and we return to our old self and activities, we give in to the flesh, it's becoming a spiritual adulterer. James chapter 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All right. So what then do we do? Paul's point, the rest of the chapter, 12 to 23, is simple. Uh, well, then present yourselves to God. Now, I've got to be really careful here. The ceremony of your baptism is the picture of the exchange that's already taken place. What Paul's not doing now is saying, I need another ceremony. You're already married. Now, you can, you can have a 25th anniversary wedding thing. I've done them for people. You know what I mean. To publicly acknowledge we're still going for this. Okay. But Paul's not calling us to, when he says, now present yourselves, it's not ceremonial. It's not religious. It doesn't impart any new grace. You're like, I now present myself and bequeath myself to a spiritual reality that I now... You know. it, it's simpler than that. Paul's saying, all this stuff's already true. You're already married. Now show up with all yourself. And give yourself to your marriage. Don't be distracted in your mind. I'm back to a physical marriage experience, but don't be distracted. Don't be, don't be in ten different ways. Make this person the, the main person in your life. And that's what Paul is saying to us. So let me read verses 12 to 14. Therefore do not let sin reign, that is, be the, the king, in your mortal body, so that you obey its lust. 
Do not go on in presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. That's actually a promise. Uh, the other parts are like, hey man, do this, do this, but you Christian, this is back to, you're not desperately wicked. If you're a real believer, sin will not master you. And we can have a bad weekend, have a bad month. I don't know how long bad is. Some of you are like, dude, can you have a bad two years? Probably. That's where the line gets fuzzy, because some people in the room are like, oh no, you're not a Christian. I don't know where the line of demarcation is, but there are a number of examples in the Bible of bad marriages with God that eventually end up good. Point of this to say. Verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's explain. He starts out with therefore. Okay, based on our relationship and the baptism picture and everything, therefore, don't do that anymore. Don't live in the old person. The doctrine of our union with Christ must lead to application. Number two. Now, live in light of who you are. From our previous examples, now like you're married now, act like it. You're graduate now, act like it. You're a soldier, now act like it. Number three, the fact that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection does not mean that it is no longer possible for us to sin. You're like, I got that. I think, going back to marriage between a man and a woman, I think one of the greatest things you can do in your marriage to have peace and joy and love is to learn to ask for forgiveness. Be an expert at it. Outserve your wife if you're a man, outserve your husband if you're a lady, by being the first one to say, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? I'm a jerk. I did this. Would you please forgive me? And keeping short accounts. But also, that person who asks for forgiveness usually has the right mindset, and it is this I know that marriage isn't perfect. I know I'm not perfect, so they tend to extend grace to other people. People who know how to ask for forgiveness typically also know how to extend grace to others, recognizing their own fallibilities. Good marriages are built on that. They're built on the recognition of, dude, I'm just lucky to be here. I married way above myself, and God is good to me. And therefore, I'm just going to be make sure I don't get thrown out of here. Now, and because I'm getting to a certain age, I may have already given this illustration sometime in the first 20 weeks, but go with it. It's a a true story of Carla and I, and we were in North Carolina, and we were driving along, and Carla had seen in a magazine one time a place called the um, Replacement Center. Yeah, it's it's got all the kind of dishes you've ever bought, and it's got... It's got some of those. If you drop in and go, I had this set of dishes my parents gave me, Finlandia, my wedding, and now I've broken all my pieces, right? Or whatever they are. Do you have any of those? Oh, they've got them. I mean, they've got a warehouse the size of Yugoslavia. And so if you go there and you just say, I need a, and they're like, you know, it's like a scene from Indiana Jones, but they're there. So they finally wheel them out. So anyway, we're driving along and Carla goes, she sees a billboard for the replacement center, and she's like, hey, let's go there. So we drive to this place, we get there, and it's my habit, usually, when I'm as Christian as I can be, to get out and take Carla's door and open it, and we both get out. I just sat in my chair. Carla actually got herself, or was getting herself out, and she's like, aren't you coming? I said, nope. 
I said, I know what this is all about. You're taking me in the replacement center. It's a true story. So I guess y'all know Yeah, I know who's in there. That's right. Did it work? Yeah, all I saw was like, I looked in the door and I'm like, Brad Pitt was in there. And I was like, not going in there. Not going in there. So, all right. We actually went in. All right. So, <laughs> don't go there, Steve. There you go. So, number three, the fact that we're united with Christ in his death and resurrection does not mean that it is now no longer possible for us to sin. My point about the asking forgiveness, all those pieces, is this. You're going to be a lot happier if you come to this recognition. And I know that what I'm about to say will be spurned, disagreed with, whatever, frightening. Because it will sound like I'm saying back to, just go ahead and sin. It's not what I'm saying. I hope you know that. But you have to come to a place where you go, I'm not a perfect person as a Christian. I'll never be a perfect person as a Christian. Uh, I might be a struggling Christian my entire life. You're not giving into that. You're acknowledging the reality that as a struggling Christian, this is going to be a war, and everyone's war is different. And some people may appear to be winning a lot more than you, but others... It's coming to a, re- a realization that, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm not Popeye. And that I'm not giving up. I'm going to fight the good fight. I'm going to work as hard by God's grace to be holy as I can. But I have expectations of others and myself that I'm fallible and I'm going to sin and I'm going to need forgiveness. And there's something that registers, takes the pride way down. Okay? Nobody act big, nobody act little. Everybody act medium. And it's that kind of family life, it's that kind of reality that does not give in to passivity, but it works hard with the recognition that God is in charge of all of that. And you give people grace. And I think what I'm saying here is simply this. Do you understand that this is a war that you cannot win? Romans chapter 7. Here is Paul's own acknowledgement. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. You ever feel like that? For I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing that I hate. Yep. Verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Do you understand all the time he said, I? Right? For what I am doing, I do not understand. I am not practicing what I would like to do. I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. In chapter 7, when we, Lord willing, get there next week, Paul is going to talk about the battle within and who's doing what in there. And it's back to the conversation of there's no unholy person in charge of your heart. There, there's, no, there's no the wicked person within the Christian. There's the flesh, and we're going to talk about that. Paul is saying, I the Christian, I the born-again person, don't always choose to do the right thing. I the new man. However, there is the residual, and when that sin happens, 
it's not me who's, who's not the question of whether he chooses it. It's not me originating that. Paul only has one person within. Paul doesn't say we. Paul doesn't say we and it. or He's not, he's not like the we, we, <laughs> right? It's me versus him. There's no will on the other side of this. There's only one will in Paul. Paul is saying, I'm choosing to do the wrong things. I don't always do what I should do. I, the born-again new person, who has the freedom to either live back here wrongly, but I need to live over here. I choose sometimes to do these things. But he's also telling you, you don't have to, you don't live there. Paul's not saying, I live over there. And he's also not saying, you can't stop it. He's not saying, it's impossible to stop this. He's saying, the flesh is always with me. And anyway, we're, we're in Romans 7, that's his whole picture. But the conversation is, what do I do with that dude? And what's the power over me? So, And then Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Paul's humility is simply that. I struggle. Sometimes I give in to it. I don't always do what I should do. And I have not attained in this life, but I still press on. That's the spirit we have to get. Number four, nor does it mean that we no longer need to pursue holiness and fight sin. Romans 12 tells us, goodbye Steve. Man, I was going to get to something interesting. Thanks for serving. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. And Hebrews 12 tells us to pursue holiness. Right? It's not passive. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Number five, God expects us to exert effort to do His revealed will. Uh, Morag mentioned last week, I think, or two weeks ago, Philippians 2. And so Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do, or work for his good pleasure. That is the balance. That is the balance point. It's God who's giving you grace. It's God's spirit who's enabling you. It's God who's causing sanctification. It's the fruit of the spirit being born in your life. All those are God working in you. Now, in light of that, all those resources... You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation, but work it out. It's already in there. You can't work something out that's not in. So he's talking to Christians. Work out your salvation. Okay. And what's really encouraging is Philippians 1.6, of course. Our victory in Christ is assured. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Dude. Who's the guy who put so many notes in here today? I'm going to attempt by the grace of God to complete my notes. I don't usually do that, but I don't want to come back to Romans 6. I think, I think we have done everything we need to do in Romans 6 at the end of this day. So chapter 6, 15 to 23, we are slaves of sin, now have been set free to be slaves of righteousness. This is Paul's picture, verses 15 to 23. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, 
you were slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. You've had a change of status. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. When Paul exhorts us to give ourselves to righteousness, he is starting from the positional point of saying, you already are moved over to that status. And if you're a real believer, it will not master you, but it's going to fight you the entire time you're here. Let's go back to it. Verse 19. I am speaking in human terms. What, is he speaking heaven terms? He means, I'm using word pictures. I'm using a lot of story. Baptism, slavery, whatever. I'm using pictures. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. He doesn't mean because you're wicked and I'm spiritually saying, this is really hard to understand. How this thing works. Okay? So in verse 20, I'm sorry, in verse 19. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness in the past resulting in further lawlessness. So now, in your new status, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Justification. Now this is how sanctification works, is what Paul's trying to say. All right, right, a few points. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 20. I guess I was supposed to read that part. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. La, 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 la. But it also meant you weren't able. But verse 21, Therefore, what benefit were you deriving then from the things of which you are now ashamed before you knew Christ? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefits resulting in sanctification. And the outcome... Justification, sanctification, glorification. Paul keeps riding that bus. That's what he is. Verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the most important verses in the book of Romans. Understood in its context, it means some different things for us. Okay, some quick points. Number one, in verse 19, Paul explains why he's been using so many word pictures. Because it's hard to understand this doctrine. (laughs) Paul continues to picture for us the already but not yet reality of sanctification. That's what we've got to get used to. You're already saved, and you're not as saved as you're going to be. That's a constant view of the Christian life. We are positionally set apart to God, but we are progressively battling uh, against the flesh by the power of the Spirit to become practically holy. Number two, Jesus talked to us about the issue of slavery to sin in the past. John 8. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciple or disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants who have never been enslaved to anyone. How is that you say you will become free? Talk about revisionist history. Like, y'all ever hear of Egypt? Or the Babylonian captivity? Or the Persians? Or the Philistines took the ark? Ah, forget about that. Verse 34. 
Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. And if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. And then number three, Paul is continuing to answer the charge against the gospel of justification by grace alone through faith alone. In verse 1, he addressed the error of those who would say that the gospel message encourages us to sin more in order to obtain more grace. In verse 15, Paul continues to address the misconception about grace, namely that grace once received leads us to careless living. So number four, grace properly understood is actually a key to growth and holiness. Back to my picture up here. You don't get saved by grace and then sanctified by works, but actually grace is super important to our sanctification. Protestant Reformation. Sola gratia. Only the grace of God can save a person. God's grace is both his stance towards us, namely his graciousness, and grace is also the desire and the power to do his will. When we affirm that we are saved by grace alone, we mean not only that God has given us unmerited gifts or favor, his graciousness, but also, and, more, and most importantly, he has overcome our depravity and inability to respond by his grace, namely the desire and power to do his will. Thus, grace, understood in salvation, is irresistible. Next page. Page five, page five. All right, here's a poorly constructed paragraph I wrote, but um, it's like one giant run-on sentence. For you, for you grammarians in here. But number five. So all empowerment from God is a grace gift. But not all grace gifts are empowerment. God can give us a pumpkin pie as a gift, or he can empower us to make pumpkin pies ourselves. One is a gracious gift that we did nothing to earn. The other one is an empowerment to do what he wants us to do. They're both grace gifts or empowerments from God, but they're not all of the same nature. Salvation is of one. He gave us a pumpkin pie. Sanctification is he teaches you how to make pumpkin pies. And he gives you the grace to do it and the ingredients. And an awesome kitchen. And your grandmother's recipe. And people like me to come over and eat it. God has given us grace that is unmerited favor by his election of us. The atonement of Christ, justification, baptism in the Spirit, sealing us in Christ, eternal life. These and many more gifts of God's graciousness towards us are regarding our legal standing towards him and our relationship to him. God has given us grace or empowerment by overcoming our depravity, regenerating us, thus making us alive, by empowering us to believe, by filling us for service, by enabling us to endure and even triumph in, in suffering. My grace is sufficient for you. So number six, pointing us back to the scriptures as a source of sanctification, Donald Whitney, a professor at Southern who's written some books on sanctification, affirms this. We have learned that the spiritual disciplines are scriptural paths where we may expect to encounter the transforming grace of God. They don't give you grace. The most critical discipline is the intake of God's word. No factor is more influential in making us more like the Son of God than the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. Um, in all the illustrations I gave, whether becoming a citizen or getting married or whatever, there's some initial covenantal decisions that you made to get in that or ceremonial things. To reflect on them is good for your marriage. It's for good for being a soldier. Your original commitments should be sharp in your mind, and the Word of God continuously helps us understand that. Hey, the last part is just simply for uh, FYI. 
Not that you were concerned, but books that have shaped my thinking on sanctification. Um, I'm surprised none of these are coloring books. But um, these 11 have True Spirituality by Francis Schaeffer, Balancing the Christian Life by Charles Ryrie, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life by William Law, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney, Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards, A Quest for Godliness by J.I. Packer, Hot Tub Religion by, by J.I. Packer, The Pursuit of God and the Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges, The Saint and His Savior by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and Keep in Step with the Spirit by J.I. Packer. Apparently, Packer has helped me a lot. My four favorite books, and I'll close with that, True Spirituality by Francis Schaeffer. This book taught me that there are no hidden formulas, that spirituality was first and foremost about relationship with God, and that true spirituality touches every aspect of life, not merely my devotional life. Secondly, Balancing the Christian Life by Charles Ryrie. As you would expect from the title, this book taught me how to balance my spiritual life between what the Spirit does and what is required of me, many of the things I'm talking about here today. I learned key definitions of spirituality and spirit filling. I learned the importance of the Holy Spirit in producing genuine spirituality. Thirdly, The Quest for Godliness by Packer. Packer taught me a high vision of holiness through the Puritans and the importance of being Bible Christians. This book helped me see the best practices of the Puritans and how to avoid mysticism. And finally, The Saint and His Savior, which I believe is my favorite book on, on sanctification by Spurgeon. This book is my favorite. You know, I said that before I looked down. Apparently, I agree with myself. If I said, this book is trash, yeah. Spurgeon teaches us to love Christ as the root of real spiritual growth. We are reminded that apparent desertions are to draw us closer to Christ and cause a deeper longing for him. Well, Lord willing, we will look at Romans 7 next week about Paul's practical implications of the battle within. So let me pray for you.